Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history. Like sharks, spiders and gobstoppers. Mmm, yum yum. And we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways, truly unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of ribbons is in fact all about orphans in Victorian England? England, or that the history of backstabbers is all about the rise of Stalin and the Bolsheviks. Oh, I can't wait to do that, James. The man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing, he will nevertheless help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He's one of the country's leading professors of history. It's James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me, but ably helping me pilot us through this episode is the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis, off of the telly. (laughs) Thank you very much. This is another episode. and We're back to doing some homeschooling stuff because of another national lockdown. It's a homeschooling series for kids, but uh, we know that there are lots of adults out there who are enjoying it as well. Each episode, what we do is we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history. We prove that it does. And not only that, that it's a really important history. Today, I'm very excited about this, we're doing the history of betrayal, which of course for us is all going to be about Russian spies during the Cold War. But before that, before getting that connection sorted out, we're going to think about brainstorming how else we might think about the history of betrayal. James, there are so many colourful stories we can do, aren't there? Oh, there are wonderful stories. I've got one here for you. Uh, Take a guy called Paul Cole. He was British Deputy Commander Uh, during the end of World War II. And this man helped build up the French resistance and then he shot them, sold them out to the secret police of Germany, the Gestapo. Mm. And eventually he was captured uh, and shot dead by a French policeman in 1946. Or betrayal can also be about not just strangers or enemies or rivals. It can also be those people who are nearest and dearest to you. Think of political betrayals. Michael Gove betraying Boris Johnson during the previous... Uh, election campaign for leader of the Conservative Party when David Cameron resigned over Europe and Theresa May stepped into the breach. Basically, Gove just left Boris Johnson hanging there. Or think about Henry VIII's reign and the betrayal of close friends and wives and political advisers. Think also of Nazi Germany when family members were told to spy on their nearest and dearest and betray their secrets to the Nazi authorities. Mm, it's all, it's wonderful stuff, isn't it? Because you can't really have betrayal without some sense of loyalty. And the way that I think loyalty was experienced and understood has also changed over time, perhaps. Maybe there's a history of loyalty we could do, James. Um, I've got a great example of a betrayal for you. This is one of the most famous in history. Um, First World War. So think, you know, um, beginning of the First World War, you've got an Austrian army officer, a guy called Alfred Redl. And what he does is he works as a spy for the Russians, And he tells the Russians everything that the Austrians are about to do, like their plans for when they invade Serbia in 1914. So he tells the Russians what's going to happen. The Serbians are fully, fully prepared and they manage to defeat the Austro-Hungarian invasion of that year, 1914. It becomes one of the greatest upsets of modern military history. Uh, Interestingly, when he was captured, he... he, um, 
Uh, it said that he, well, it did not, it said he definitely <laughs> committed suicide. And there were a couple of themes going on here, which I looked into a bit. One is is the claim that he might have done it for money. And also this idea of, of um, guilt, which I think is quite interesting. Take us back to Judas Iscariot, the famous betrayer of Jesus. He was one of Jesus's closest disciples. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And when all of this happens, Jesus gets arrested. Um, according to Matthew's gospel, Judas then regrets his actions, um, returns the money and he kills himself. So there's a similarity there with what happened with Radel. Um, and this sense of money as well, I think that comes up in, in, in many of these stories of betrayal, the motivation for it. Why do you break that loyalty? And this is to do with the conquistador Francisco Pizarro. Uh, so think now the 1530s, we've gone to South America, the Spanish are landing there. They're trying to, to capture and destroy the Incan Empire and they capture the Incan Emperor Atahualpa and uh, what he does is he promises to fill a room up with gold and then the same room it's a big room they've even got the measurements of it in Spanish accounts he promises to fill it up again twice with silver if only the Spanish would spare his life Pizarro agrees uh, but then they capture and they kill him anyway um, so just a couple of examples there that make you realise there are important themes of motivation behind betrayal why you might do it and also a really important uh, question of guilt for those who survived and are actually caught at it. All sorts of wonderful histories to explore. But today, what we're going to do is we're talking about betrayal in a very specific example. We're talking about it in terms of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. They are two American citizens who are convicted of spying for the Russians in 1950 during the Cold War and they're sentenced to death. Oh, that's fascinating, Sam. I'm very similar to a brilliant Amazon Prime series I'm watching at the moment called The Americans, which is about two KGB sleeper agents about 30 years later. So they're operating in the, the Reagan era. But many of the themes that we're going to be talking about are very similar to that. If you haven't seen it, watch it. There are six or seven seasons of it. Hmm. Nice. I'm going, to, I'm going to go and do that this evening, James, my plan for my, my lock, lockdown watching. Let's start with um, a, a sort of a hook to get you involved um, in, in what's happening here. This is uh, an original document from the time. This, in fact, is Judge Irving Kaufman's statement that he read out upon the sentencing of the Rosenbergs in March 1951. We'll then go from here and explain what they did and the context of it. Citizens of this country who betray their fellow countrymen can be under none of the delusions about the benignity of Soviet power that they might have been prior to World War II. The nature of Russian terrorism is now self-evident. I consider your crime worse than murder. Plain, deliberate, contemplated murder is dwarfed in magnitude by comparison with the crime you have committed. In committing the act of murder, the criminal kills only his victim. The immediate family is brought to grief, and when justice is meted out, the chapter is closed. But in your case, I believe your conduct in putting into the hands of the Russians the A-bomb, years before our best scientists predicted Russia would perfect the bomb, has already caused, in my opinion, the communist aggression in Korea with the resultant casualties exceeding 50,000, and who knows but that millions more of innocent people may pay the price of your treason. 
Indeed, by your betrayal, you undoubtedly have altered the course of history to the disadvantage of our country. No one can say that we do not live in a constant state of tension. We have evidence of your treachery all around us every day. For the civilian defence activities throughout the nation are aimed at preparing us for an atom bomb attack. Nor can it be said, in mitigation of the offence, that the power which set the conspiracy in motion and profited from it was not openly hostile to the United States at the time of the conspiracy. If this was your excuse, the error of your ways in setting yourselves above our properly constituted authorities, and the decision of those authorities not to share the information with Russia must now be obvious. In light of this, I can only conclude that defendants entered into this most serious conspiracy against their country with full realisation of its implications. The statute of which the defendants at the bar stand convicted is clear. I have previously stated my view that the verdict of guilty was amply justified by the evidence. In the light of the circumstances, I feel that I must pass such sentence upon the principles in this diabolical conspiracy to destroy a God-fearing nation, which will demonstrate with finality that this nation's security must remain inviolate that traffic in military secrets, whether promoted by slavish devotion to a foreign ideology or by a desire for monetary gains, must cease. The evidence indicated quite clearly that Julius Rosenberg was the prime mover in this conspiracy, but let no mistake be made about the role which his wife, Ethel Rosenberg, played in the conspiracy. Instead of deterring him from pursuing his ignoble cause, she encouraged and assisted the cause. She was a mature woman, almost three years older than her husband and almost seven years older than her younger brother. She was a full-fledged partner in this crime. Indeed, the defendants Julius and Ethel Rosenberg placed their devotion to their cause above their own personal safety and were conscious that they were sacrificing their own children should their misdeeds be detected, all of which did not deter them from pursuing their course. Love for their cause dominated their lives. It was even greater than their love for their children. That is some powerful statement, James, isn't it? That from the judge who sentenced the Rosenbergs. So what on earth is going on here? Well, Sam, let me pick up the story here. So what we have here is betrayal by these two people, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, of their country. This is treason. Now, they're a married couple, they're American, and they are spies for the Russians. They are the only spies to be executed during the Cold War period. They're convicted of espionage in 1951 and they are electrocuted in 1953. And what they're accused of is providing top-secret information, all sorts of valuable stuff about radar, about sonar, about jet propulsion engines, all sorts of valuable designs for nuclear weapons that the Americans have at the time. They're the only country in the world to have nuclear weapons and they're giving them to the Russians. They're also accused of running a network of spies. So they they are convicted with a series of other co-conspirators who are sentenced to prison, including, importantly, Ethel's brother, a man called David Greenglass, and he is the person who makes a plea agreement and basically shops his brother-in-law and, in fact, his sister. Now, why were the Russians so interested in these people? Julius Rosenberg, we know, was a 
communist fairly early on. And he was also in a job at the Army Signal Corps Engineering Laboratories at Fort Monmouth in New Jersey. And he worked there as an engineer inspector until about the end of the Second World War, 1945, when he was fired, uh, partly because the US Army discovered that he was a member or had previously been a member of the Communist Party. However, this is a time when all sorts of important research is being done at this facility. Now, the Russians and the Americans are allies in the Second World War during this period, but there is no sharing of military secrets around, um, around uh, nuclear weapons at this time. So basically, they use him to get all sorts of materials, and they recruit him on Labor Day in 1942. He's recruited by a Russian spymaster. And during this period, he provides thousands of classified reports to the Russians, and this is what they get really cross about. He also runs a series of other spies. He recruits them to be part and parcel of this. And this is why he's so important. They get arrested. They're put on trial. It's a big deal. And then they are electrocuted later on. Now, you're going to fill us in on the background to why it's so important during this period and tell us about the nuclear arms race, aren't you, Sam? That's right. Um, so to understand what's going on here, you need to go back in time a bit towards the end of the Second World War. And to think about when America dropped the, the first atomic bomb on Japan in August of 1945, that led to a, a very intense arms race, the nuclear arms race, where you have these superpowers competing to see who can produce the most powerful bombs and, and trying to kind of get to grips with the new technology of this devastating new weapon. Um, Stalin in particular, so he's in charge of the Russians, realises that they have to catch up with the Americans. And he actually makes atomic research the, the top Russian scientific priority. They pour money into developing nuclear weapons. Um, they actually build entire towns. There's one called Arzema 16, um, just an entire town built only to house scientists and engineers working on this a nuclear challenge. Um, this All this hard work pays off. It just takes them about four years. But by, so by 1949, the Soviets have their own atomic bomb. So the starting point was 1945 and the Americans dropped the bomb on Japan. Then you jump to August 1914 when Russia detonates its first atomic bomb and it causes immense concern in America because the US intelligence had predicted that the, the Russians would not be able to develop a bomb until 1953. So it's four years earlier than the Americans think. The Americans then uh, basically panic. Um, in 1951, they set up uh, the Strategic Air Command. Uh, they, they developed a policy of um, constant readiness, being constantly um, aware of the threat coming from Russia. They identify uh, 6,000 different targets in Russia that they would attack in the event of a war. So that happens just a couple of years after the Russians have developed the bomb. 1952, um, there's another big change because the Americans detonate the first hydrogen bomb. This is different to the atom bomb, which was dropped on Japan uh, at the end of the Second World War. The hydrogen bomb, um, the H-bomb sometimes it's known as, it's a thousand times more powerful than the atom bomb. 
Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. This is in 1952. Then nine months later, the Russians detonate their own hydrogen bomb. So think about the changing gaps here. 1945, the Americans... Uh, dropped the first atom bomb, 1949, the Russians. That's four years. And then suddenly that gap has closed with the hydrogen bomb between 1952, the Americans, and 1953, the Russians. And then there's another change, because what happens is that the Americans develop a hydrogen bomb that's small enough to be dropped by a bomber. They do that in 1954 in March. And the Russians do the same thing in September. So that gap has now narrowed to just six months when the Russians drop their own hydrogen bomb from a bomber. What this leads to is another technological race. It becomes a real problem, a massive concern about the design of the technology for long distance bombers that can actually deliver these bombs. Um, it's something known as the bomber gap, where the Americans become fearful that the Russians are more advanced in their technology. And it leads to the uh, Russians developing uh, the a bison jet bomber and the long range Tu-95. And in response, the Americans develop the B-52 bomber. So there you go, James, a bit of a bit of background to the incredible stress um, that's being experienced at diplomatic and military levels over the threat of nuclear weapons. Brilliant. So we can see all of this technological advancement going on here. But also, it's really important to think about what's happening in Europe and around the world at this period, because there is a real shift, a real realignment of global powers post-World War II, where America finds itself facing a very different landscape. Now, what's happened is you have a very strong Russia. There's something called the Common Form, which is a supranational alliance of Marxist-Leninist 
communist parties throughout the world. And Russia is trying to help communists win power in Malaya, Indonesia, Burma, the Philippines, and indeed in Korea. And this is something that the Americans are really wary about, this spread of communism. Also, China has changed. Now, traditionally, China was regarded as an ally of the Americans, their ally in the Far East. But something very significant happens in 1949. China becomes communist. And whereas America had pumped loads of money, $2 billion in aid into China to support the nationalists between 1946 and 1949. This was now a sudden reversal in fortunes. And now what they have is a new massive communist state on the map. Now, I want to talk now about the relevance with the Korean War, because this is actually what sparks a lot of the problems that we've got. And the Korean War is really relevant to the period uh, that is related to the Rosenbergs. Now, Korea, until about 1945, had been ruled by Japan. They were then defeated uh, during the Second World War. The northern half of Korea was liberated by Soviet troops and the southern half by American troops, which actually is the historical basis for the divide between North and South Korea that we have today. So when the war ends, the North is communist controlled with a communist leader. The South is anti-communist, not particularly democratic, but they are propped up by the Americans. Now, what happens is there is some degree of hostility between North and South, and this spills over in 1950 into open warfare. North Korean troops overwhelmed the South's forces. And so what happens is the Americans come in to liberate the South. President Truman, who's president at the time, sends over advisers, supplies, warships to the waters around Korea. At the same time, the Americans dominate the UN Security Council and put enormous pressure on them to condemn the actions of the North Koreans and to call on them to withdraw their troops. So this is really tense Cold War atmosphere here in 1950. Each superpower was was you know, rivaling up against the other. So normally, uh, in a dispute such as this, the Soviet Union would veto uh, to block the call for action by the UN. However, at this time, it's important to remember that the USSR, in other words, Russia, was boycotting the UN. So the US were able to dominate and they were able to get the UN to back the decision to send in troops. The UN was committed to using member forces to drive North Korean troops out of South Korea. And we have 18 states, including Great Britain, uh, who provided support, troops of some kind, in order to relieve this. The commander is an American, General MacArthur. Now, remember that name. He's quite important. He's the one who leads uh, the invasion. Now, the United Nations forces storm uh, ashore in Incheon in um, September 1950, uh, and at the same time, other UN forces and South Korean troops advance from Pusan. So the North Koreans are driven back beyond their border, the 38th parallel, within weeks. MacArthur 
then wants to overstep this initial objective of removing North Korean troops from South Korea. Um, the Americans did not stop. And despite pressure from China to 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 sort of stop the advance, they push forward uh, and the UN approves the plan to advance into North Korea. And by about by October of that year, US forces have reached the Yellow River with the border with China. So the nature of war has now changed from merely pushing North Korean troops out of South Korea to actually wanting to rid Korea entirely of communism. Now, then what happens is they underestimate, the UN forces underestimate the power of the Chinese and the Chinese pour to join the North Koreans, some 200,000 troops. They launch a blistering attack and they, they do very well. The UN troops uh, recover uh, and finally there is a stalemate uh, reached around the 38th parallel. Now, what's important here is that the President of the United States, Truman, and the commander, General MacArthur, fall out. They both have different priorities of what they want to do. MacArthur wants to continue the war, even invading China and even using nuclear weapons, if at all necessary. Truman felt that actually this is going too far. He wants peace. Um, and actually, saving South Korea is good enough. Uh, and what happens is Truman basically removes MacArthur from his position as commander, brings him back. He rejects the very aggressive policy towards communism and is happy with actually containing uh, the, the the objectives in terms of American foreign policy. And what follows after this is a series of peace talks between North and South Korea, which begin in June 1951. But there is bitter fighting until about 1952, when Truman is, is replaced as president by President Eisenhower, who wants to uh, end the war. Stalin then dies in March 1953, uh, which makes the Chinese and North Koreans less less confident. And then we get an armistice signed in July 1953. So there we are. That's the backdrop of what's going on. All these tensions focusing on Korea. Absolutely. And if you go back to that Kaufman, Judge Kaufman statement I read out right at the beginning, remember that section, he says, in my opinion, the communist aggression in Korea with the resultant casualties exceeding 50,000 and who knows, but that millions more of innocent people may be the price of your treason. So he's writing that at a time where everything is really uh, turning to chaos in Korea. Um, what happens is that they are sentenced to death. They're executed in June 1953. I've uh, just got a little excerpt here. And President Eisenhower notably does not come in and intervene. And he says that only the most extraordinary circumstances would warrant executive intervention in the case. In this connection, I can only say that by immeasurably increasing the chances of atomic war, the Rosenbergs may have condemned to death tens of millions of innocent people all over the world. The execution of two human beings is a grave matter, but even graver is the thought of millions of dead whose death may be directly attributable to what these spies have done. There you go. Hell of a story, that, James. Absolutely extraordinary. Shall we have a little quiz to see if everyone's been listening? Yes, we've got six <laughs> little questions for you. Do you want to go first, Sam? Yes, uh, Judge Kaufman said that the Rosenberg's crime was worse than what? Secondly, 
Who were Julius and Ethel Rosenberg? Uh, number three, uh, America first dropped its atomic bomb in 1945. When did the Russians first drop their atomic bomb? Number four, why were the Rosenbergs such an attractive couple to recruit for the Russians? Number five, the development of atomic bombs led to another technological race in the 1950s. Was it A, tanks, B, bombers or C, submarines? And number six, what kinds of information did the Rosenbergs give to the Russians and why was this useful? And do we have a task for our listeners, James? We do indeed, Sam. OK, everyone, listen up. This is a writing task. Now, what I'm going to do first is to read out a source. Now, this is a letter from General MacArthur to President Truman. Now, remember, MacArthur is in charge of the UN troops, and this is him accepting command. He wrote this in 1950. I have received your announcement of your appointment of me as United Nations Commander, I can only repeat the pledge of my complete personal loyalty to you, as well as an absolute devotion to your monumental struggle for peace and goodwill throughout the world. I hope I will not fail you. Now, the task is reflecting on MacArthur's letter, accepting the command of the troops. Write a letter from him to President Truman following his removal from that position in April 1951, explaining his actions in the Korean War. Now, remember here, what's important is that he wanted to continue pushing into North Korea, invading China if necessary, and even using nuclear weapons. So you've got to write that letter to the president from the perspective of a militarily aggressive general, General MacArthur. How about that for a task, Sam? That's a cracker. I'm glad I I don't actually have to write that actual letter in 1953 or whatever. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this first of our new homeschooling series. We've got all sorts of wonderful ones coming your way, haven't we? Um, uh, Do please follow us on social media. You can follow me at Dr Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell and you can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. You can also find out everything that we've been doing. And also, I think we've got over 30 homeschooling history episodes already recorded from the last lockdown period at our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll be in touch again soon. Cheerio. Take care, guys. property insurance partner to help your business remain resilient, FM Global is the perfect choice. We employ science, data, and research to help assist you in making informed risk mitigation decisions. We will collaborate with you to identify and reduce risks linked to natural disasters while providing solutions that promote a more sustainable future. Let's prepare to prosper.